Hi there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, the feds get grilled over travel turmoil. Our government is not hiding. We are going to assume our responsibilities and the industry must assume theirs. The transport minister and airline execs hammered with questions on the breakdown of Canada's air travel system over the holidays. In moments, MPs will be here to debate what needs to change. Then U.S. President Joe Biden under investigation. We're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. The U.S. President's own Attorney General appoints a special counsel to probe the President's handling of classified documents. We're live in D.C. with the latest and then Biden's ambassador to Canada will be here. That's coming up. Finally, close to a deal. I always believe in sticking with other premiers. Hopeful that we're going to be able to come to an agreement soon. Our provinces and Ottawa about to sign a health care agreement. Our front bench panel of premiers is standing by to weigh in. Why have you not stood up to the airlines on behalf of air passengers? Let's be clear. The responsibility is of the airlines to uphold passengers' rights. Airlines, when they violate the rules, uh, they need to be held accountable for that. They need to compensate their passengers. They need to compensate their customers for what they paid them to do. How do you explain uh, a business model that allows you to take money from Canadians while you don't have the, the crews uh, to deliver that service? Clearly, we don't want any passenger ever waiting in a hotel or ever delayed. We have and are conducting a pretty significant lessons learned, and part of that is how we communicate with our guests. Let's start with searching for accountability. As you heard there, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, as well as top executives from Canadian airlines and airport authorities, were on the hot seat today on Parliament Hill. At the heart of the grilling was the major travel delays from over the holidays. So did parliamentarians get a better sense of how to fix Canada's travel sector? We want to bring in a panel of MPs. Unfortunately, we have a few technical di difficulties. So I'm going to start off with the MP uh, to my right, and that is uh, Liberal MP Francesco Severa. Your colleagues, Mr. Severa, uh, Melissa Lantzman and, uh, and Peter Julian will be with us in a moment. Hopefully we're going to fix that, but I'm going to start with you. And the, and the first question I have for you is one that you heard the minister get a lot today. Is your government going to change the rules so that instead of passengers having to apply to airlines to be compensated when the rules are broken, they just automatically get that money? Uh, th thank you, uh, Vashi, for that question. You know, today's committee meeting, transport committee meeting, uh, something to the extent of five hours, we heard a lot of testimony. And one of the aspects that the minister brought out in his testimony uh, was the fact that we need to uh, put in place changes to the airline protection uh, bill that we brought forward uh, to protect Canadian consumers uh, when they decide to take a flight, when they go on vacation with their families or for business purposes. And one of the principles that the, the minister laid out was the principle that the onus should be on the airlines to compensate uh, their the consumers directly and very efficiently, and that the rules need to be uh, changed very uh, quickly and to be uh, so the rules are very clear, so clarification in rules. We have started that process, and actually in September, uh, the, the Passenger Bill of Rights was changed so that the refunds would be issued to consumers within a 30-day period. So that but you know that's aspect, not happening, right? Uh, there my, are 33,000 complaints alleging yeah, the opposite is happening. Yes, well, there are 33,000 complaints. In a backlog, there's actually more than that. There's 33,000 complaints, and 7,000 of those complaints related to the fact 
after the, the, the goings-on with Sunwing and what happened during the Christmas period, just 7,000 with Sunwing. Uh, in September, like I said, the, the rules were changed where within 30 days consumers need to be refunded uh, uh, where flights are cancelled and the responsibility uh, rests with the airlines. Uh, now, moving forward today, we know, we all Canadians all know what transpired over the, the Christmas break and the holidays. We had extreme weather events, which most Canadians understand, but we also had the situation with uh, with regards mostly to uh, with uh, with Sunwing, where Canadians were stranded, and the communication with passengers uh, was not uh, was not great at all. And uh, you know yeah, they issued I, a mea culpa today. They they did apologize, but there needs to be accountability, and those passengers need to be and, compensated. And I get all that, and I'm not trying to absolve the airlines of, of their culpability here or any accountability. But my question was to you whether your government will change it so that the onus is not on the passenger but on the airline. Are you willing to make that compensation automatic if criteria are met? Obviously, uh, the minister and his team uh, with uh, the staff are going through those uh, and looking at the Air Passenger Bill of Rights and how that can be strengthened. And he laid out three principles today. Uh, you know, where we land on, uh, we will see in, in, the, in the weeks and months ahead. But the goal is that the onus has to be on the airlines. The goal is to make the, the okay. uh, passenger bill of rights simpler, more effective, and for clarification to be provided, and that c consumers are again and still be put okay, first. Okay, I think the issue has been resolved. And uh, Ms. Lanceman and Mr. Julian, can you hear me okay? There you yeah, are. Yeah, for sure. Yes, we can. Okay, excellent. Good to be with you. Okay, I apologize. Uh, great to have you both with us this evening, and I apologize for the delay. Ms. Lanceman, uh, I think you could hear your, your colleague, Mr. Sobera, there on the issue of whether or not things will be automatic. Uh, I wanted to put to you, I, I heard uh, you and your, your colleagues from the Conservatives uh, pushing for stronger enforcement of the rules or even different rules today during the committee. Why didn't the Conservatives, when they were in government, introduce something that was stronger that would have prevented a situation that we're in right now? Well, as, as somebody who was elected in, in 2021, we're looking at the situation today. And what we saw in committee is a government that patted themselves on the back for passenger rights regulations that actually don't protect passengers. Vashi, today, if you are a Canadian who flies to the UK on British Airways, you are better protected than a Canadian who flies to the UK on WestJet. And until those rules are changed to put passengers to 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 even put passengers at the center uh, of all of this and, and be mindful that they slept on airport floors, that they were shifted from hotel lobby to hotel lobby in different countries waiting for a flight, trying to get somebody on the phone to pat yourself on the back for passenger protections uh, that don't actually protect passengers, I think is the is the key and what we heard in committee here. So we want to see stronger protection for, for consumers and we want to see a government that's going to answer the phone and not call, uh, you know, the culprit, which was Sunwing in this case, uh, on, on January 5th, after knowing everything that happened since December 19th. Uh, look, I'm not disagreeing with all the all the loopholes, all the vulnerabilities that we saw and all of the very genuine questions for the government and, and why there wasn't communication sooner. Uh, but but I do think it's fair to ask, you know, why we're in this position in the first place. Why have successive governments, yes, you were elected in 2021, but you represent a party that was in power for 10 years. Why have successive governments kind of bended to the will of the airlines and, and not introduced uh, a passenger bill of rights that actually does protect passengers? Yeah, look, I think those days are, are, are over where the airlines get to make, uh, make the rules. And I, I think every party has been saying that, but there is one party in the House that pats themselves on the back for putting in protections that don't protect 
passengers. So what every opposition party is calling and what many Canadians who are watching this and who probably didn't get a whole lot of reprieve from the conversation are wondering, when am I actually going to be protected uh, as a consumer? When I book a vacation with my family, sometimes the first one in after after two or three years of not traveling and make sure that that contract results in me getting to my destination and me getting to my home with my bags and maybe being fed and maybe not sitting on a tarmac for 12 hours. Mr. Julian, uh, I know that, that you echo a lot of what Ms. Lansman said, your party echoes, and in fact, you're the ones that came out this morning calling for that compensation to be automatic. But I listened to what a lot of the airline executives were saying. Uh, I know a lot of it kind of fell on deaf ears to, to many Canadians who were listening, but some of what they said made sense around the other things that go into play, like the, the organization that runs the, the airspace, for example, like the airport authorities. Is your party putting too much of a focus on airlines in this? Shouldn't there be kind of a broader approach? Well, well first off, the, the NDP presented the Air Passenger Bill of Rights uh, when the Harper government was in power. Conservatives flatly uh, voted against it, which shows that they have no credibility when it comes to protecting airline passengers. The Liberals refused the NDP amendments that would have established the same thing. And so I'll give you an example. I, I just spoke with a constituent who ha went through a horrendous situation uh, over the Christmas holidays and is now being forced to wait potentially 18 months or two years before uh, she receives any compensation at all. And, and this is the reality. We're talking about people who scrimp and save for, for years for sometimes to, to go on these vacations or uh, a, a lifetime dream and their hopes are dashed and they they lose money thousands of dollars and and there's no compensation forthcoming other countries have put in place policies that ensure that airlines have to compensate passengers and yes there are many reasons for delays but the reality is the airlines should be carrying responsibility and should be compensating. What we see in the European community, uh, airlines have being, are being pushed to actually compensate passengers. And we need a functioning air, air passenger bill of rights that doesn't force people who have gone through these often uh, egregious situations to wait for a number of years before they have any hope of getting some of the money back that they've lost. It's simply unacceptable. And, and Liberals and Conservatives for too long have, have really been listening to airline lobbyists rather than putting in place the protections that Canadians need and the protections that Taylor Backrack, as our transport critic, and Jagmeet Singh have called for now for, for a long time. Okay, I just have like 20 seconds left. But, but again, my point is, if we're putting all the onus on airlines, they say they're, they're, they're abiding by the rules right now. Is the, is the fix maybe making sure that they are rather than changing them? Right now, the rules are that they can simply say no to compensating passengers. And, and it's hived off now to a separate organization that will take a couple of years uh, potentially to look at a claim. And, and that is unacceptable. Uh, airlines do need to be accountable, and both successive conservative and liberal governments have refused to hold them accountable. Okay, I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. Thank you very much, all three of you, for your time. Uh, Francesco Sobera, Melissa Lansman, and Peter Julian. I'll head straight south of the border now, where U.S. President Joe Biden is facing tough questions over classified documents from his time as vice president found at his home in his former office. Now, Biden's own attorney general, Merrick Garland, has named a special counsel to investigate. CTV's Washington bureau chief, Joy Malvin, 
is with us now for the latest. Hi, Joy. Good to see you. Thanks for making the time. Uh, can we talk a little bit about how potentially damaging this could be for the president? Oh, well, this is huge. It's absolutely incredible that a former president, Donald Trump, and a present uh, president, Joe Biden, are both being investigated for possibly violating the law or mishandling classified documents. I, I mean, there's a bit of a feeding frenzy going on. Fox News is already calling uh, this garage gate because of the news that a second batch, a small batch, we don't know much more than that, was of classified documents were found in the garage uh, and in the home of uh, President Biden. Um, you know, uh, Biden talked about it a little bit today, saying that, look, uh, I don't know how these things got there. I have cooperated. I have handed things over, which is very different from the Donald Trump scenario where there was an FBI raid uh, because of classified documents that were not turned over and there was no cooperation. So it's a bit of a political feeding frenzy right now. And, and certainly to that effect, the, the GOP is jumping on it, right? Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, reacting earlier. I think Congress has to investigate this. Here's an individual that's been in office for more than 40 years. Here's an individual that sat on 60 Minutes that was so concerned about President Trump's documents locked in behind, and now we find it just as a vice president, keeping it for years out in the open in different locations. I do not think any American believes that justice should not be equal to all. My guess is, Joy, they're not going to let this one go? Uh, no, uh, Republicans are apoplectic. I mean, they are howling. Where's the double standard here? You know, you raid a former president's home and, and, and you're not doing the same of, of Joe Biden. Uh, of course, I pointed out a lot of legal experts are saying it's like apples and oranges because uh, the White House is insisting they are cooperating. And Donald Trump, of course, at first was not cooperating. Uh, but yeah, they will not let this go. Uh, this, you know, the hope is that this investigator who was appointed by Trump will actually, um, you know, not be seen, uh, you know, be seen as, as more of an impartial person to look at all of this. But we all know when Robert Mueller was appointed for Donald Trump, he was considered impartial until he wasn't. Very good point. Okay, thanks, Joy. Uh, CTV Washington Bureau Chief Joy Malvin in D.C. there for us. Staying south of the border, the U.S. is seeing the first monthly consumer price drop in two and a half years. New data shows the rate of inflation there dipped slightly by 0.1% in December to 6.5%. Rather, The latest Canadian inflation data is coming out next week on Tuesday. Up next tonight on Power Play, the U.S. ambassador to Canada is here in studio. We'll ask him about those classified documents and whether Canada should worry about U.S. protectionism. That's next. The Prime Minister spent a chunk of his time at the North American Leaders Summit this week warning against looking inward. Should Canada be worried about the pull of protectionism in the U.S.? I spoke with U.S. Ambassador David Cohen about that earlier, but I started off asking him about the special counsel appointed to investigate classified documents found at President Biden's home and former office. I know you're a diplomat, so you're probably not going to say a lot, but, but I will ask. Uh, does it deflate the Democrats' criticism of the Republicans, and in particular the former president, Donald Trump, for the discovery of the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago? Does it deflate the criticism that they've leveled so far? I am a diplomat. I am the United States ambassador to, to Canada. I don't really have commentary and participation on that, but I 
just as a factual matter, I, um, I think that the situations are so different. I mean, it's not the finding of classified documents that was the issue for the former president. And I think, um, I think the attorney general has done exactly the right thing, which is, okay, we'll appoint a special prosecutor to mirror what I did um, for former President Trump. But at the end of the day, um, the issue is the behavior of the former president and, by the way, the former vice president, which is what these papers relate to. Yeah, he was um, vice and, president at the time. Right, these are documents right. from this point, also turned uh, over by his own well, my, legal That's team. my point. Yeah. It's what you do when it's what you do when you discover that these documents exist in um, in your places of possession. I think the I think the attorney general appointed a, a special counsel to make sure that there is no question but that he as attorney general is bending over backwards to treat both of these uh, both of these individuals in the same way. And I think um, in the full course of the investigation the differences in behavior of the principals will become even more apparent. And, and certainly not to take away from those differences, like I said, found by his own legal team, turned over. Um, is, it, is it surprising to you, though, that, that, the, that he would even have in his possession any classified documents? So again, I, I, I'm just not comfortable commenting because I don't know enough to, to do that. But um, it's, you know, these enterprises of a of a president, former president, former vice president, they're sprawling enterprises. And there's just, I mean, I haven't heard anything yet that discloses that Joe Biden knew that these documents were in, were in his quote unquote possession. Um, it, a lot of people work for, you know, work for Joe Biden. Um, and again, I can only comment, I can only reflect on what the behavior is once the discovery is made. And I can't imagine that the American people or anyone else would want their president or former vice president to do anything more than what Joe Biden has done, which is turn, turn everything over and cooperate fully um, and not participate in any obstruction, not try and hide the documents, not try and prevent their being returned to the to the National Archives. And we'll await the outcome of that investigation. Correct. Let me turn now to that summit and the relationship between our two countries. I want to put to you something that the Prime Minister said in some of his remarks. He said, uh, almost like a warning of sorts, when the world is uncertain, it's human nature to look inwards, to feel the pull of protectionism urges. Uh, in your assessment, does President Biden feel that pull? Does his administration and the administration you represent feel that pull? And are those impulses a threat to the relationship between our two countries? So um, I'm, I can give a very short answer to that, which I will, and then I'll explain, <laughs> which is no. Um, I, don't, I don't think Joe Biden feels a pull of protectionism. Um, I've known him for 30 years, for almost three decades. And he's had a very consistent um, perspective and attitude around trade and around commerce, which is, first and foremost, he is in the business of promoting American jobs and American economic activity. But he also has a full appreciation of the fact that America can't go it alone on anything. He has said that. He said it repeatedly. Um, Brian Deese, principal economic advisor in a, in a, in a, in a speech last year, um, made the point that when Joe Biden talks about um, looking to America first for manufacturing, 
that does not mean that America can manufacture everything it wants on its own, that it needs to rely on its friends and on its allies. And I think, so I think what you're seeing here is a reflection of a philosophy around economics that we do not, as we as a country, do not want to be held hostage by people who are not friends of ours. We don't want to be held hostage by Russia, by China. Sure. We want to have alliances with friends like Canada. And it certainly, I would not take away from even the exemptions, for example, Canada was able to carve out, some of which you yeah. alluded to there in the Inflation Reduction Act. But I do have to respectfully challenge the idea that Joe Biden is, has no protectionist tendencies. I mean, much of the act describes heavily subsidizing things that are made solely in the U.S. There's lots of things Canada didn't carve out an exemption for. Do you expect, is it your expectation that Canada try to counter that? I do think macroeconomically that all countries try and make sure that they're protecting businesses and jobs in their countries. Um, and I think they're... But by are, heavily subsidizing it to the tune well, of more than $300 billion? But, well, but that's... $300 billion is a big number, but against the overall trade relationship between the United States and Canada and the overall trade relationship of the United States, $300 billion is not that big a number. And again, you have to look... And I, this is where my real pushback is, which is you have to look at the integrated and complementary nature of the supply chains that exist particularly between the United States and Canada, but also with Mexico. So the United States, yes, has an incentive system that is going to stimulate production of semiconductors and chips in the United States. Um, but that production, that stimulation, because of the integrated and complementary nature of our supply chains, is also going to lead to increased economic activity and jobs in Canada. It will, but so, there are other things like batteries, for example, and the advanced right. manufacturing credit that will lead to, that is meant to incentivize that happening in the U.S. Well, the United States, look, I mean... I'm not saying as, it's a bad thing, right, I get as, it. As, I mean, as close as the relationship is between Canada and the United States, as big as the trade relationship is, as important as the trade relationship is, Joe Biden was elected president of the United States by the people of the United States, and he has to have a priority, and it's an appropriate priority to make sure that he grows jobs and that he stimulates economic activity in the United States. The good news for Canada is that, again, because of the integrated nature of our supply chains, the complementary nature of those chains, Canada will be a direct beneficiary of all of that activity. I do, just before I let you go, want to also ask you about Nexus, because that had been an irritant between our two countries. Mm -hmm. There is an interim solution reached. Is the United States prepared to, uh, in the efforts of reaching a, a more permanent solution or a more long-term solution, withdraw its request to have its border agents uh, immune or, or, or be granted immunity from Canadian prosecution, border agents who work rather in enrollment offices in Canada? Mm -hmm. That's the only red line the United States has had throughout this process. That is not likely to change. Um, this compromise is a pretty good compromise. It'll be slightly clunkier than the original system because you've got to make two stops to have, to have your interviews. But it's, it provides Canada with the time and the space to see if um, they can figure out a way to extend these basic immunities to CBP agents. They get to this place because these interviews with CBP agents are taking place in the preclearance area where they already have those immunities and protections. 
That was less of an ask in their perception than the original suggestion that we made. Okay, Ambassador, I'll leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate being on the program. Thanks a lot. Great to have you. Thanks, Great. Ambassador. That was U.S. Ambassador David Cohen. Uh, a little bit later on the program, we're going to dig into what you heard from him on protectionism with the front bench. Tonight, we're bringing in the premiers, Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter. That's just ahead. Next, though, what happened in politics today? The list is after a quick break. Welcome back to Power Play, to a developing story in Quebec now, where at least one person is missing after an explosion at a propane company. CTV's Vanessa Lee is at the site of that explosion, about 50 kilometers north of Montreal. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for being with us. What can you tell us about what's happening there right now? Well, Vashi, as you just mentioned, authorities say that at least one person is still missing after the explosion this morning. The issue right now is they don't know exactly how many people were inside at the time of the explosion. It happened at Propane La Fortune. This is a family-run business. They supply heating oil as well as propane. And so this happened just after 11 o'clock this morning. The explosion could be felt as far as two kilometers away. So we're just about one kilometer away from the heart of the town. The mayor says that he was in the his office at the time, and he said that it felt like an earthquake. That's what people thought that they had just experienced. And so firefighters rushed to the scene right away, but they actually had to back away because they were worried that there would be more explosions. They weren't sure if all of the tanks had already been set off, and so they had to back off. They set up a one-kilometer perimeter around this business to ensure everyone's safety, and about an hour ago, they lifted that perimeter. You can see behind me, uh, there is a big plume of smoke. As of an hour and a half ago, firefighters say that the, the, the fire still was not yet under control, but of course, the priority right now is to figure out exactly how many people were inside at the time. The mayor says that people here are just gutted. He's, he broke down. He got really emotional as he was talking about the thought of missing people, of his citizens being missing. And he's not sure if it's just one or if it's three or four. But really, he and so many other people here, Vashi, are hoping for the best. I'm sure. Thanks a lot, Vanessa. CTV's Vanessa Lee, just north of Montreal. Let's turn now to the list. What's happening in politics today? Prime Minister Trudeau hosted Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida in Ottawa. The world is a tough place right now, but it's good to know that we can count on our good and true friends to get through this together. Your leadership as president of the G7 will be extremely important this year as we continue our work on global security and on what we must be doing together to build a sustainable and resilient future. The pair focused their meeting on security and trade, with the G7 coordinating its response to Russia's war in Ukraine and the federal government looking to expand Canada's trade relationship with Japan, especially around resources like LNG. And a big leadership change in Russia's war on Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin has removed his top commander in Ukraine, Sergei Surovikin, just three months after he was appointed. 
dubbed General Armageddon for his brutal tactics in previous wars, including Russia's operations in Syria. He also oversaw the recent military campaign against Ukraine's energy infrastructure and Russia's withdrawal from the city of Kherson, a major success for Ukraine. And the Prime Minister is now directing his government to review contracts given to the consulting firm McKinsey and Comine after the opposition called company rather after the opposition called for a parliamentary investigation following reports that scrutinized a surge in government contracts to the private company from about $2 million over nine years under Stephen Harper's Conservatives to more than $66 million in the last six years under the Liberals. Trudeau has tasked Procurement Minister Helena Yazik and Treasury Board President Mona Forche with reviewing the approval process for the contracts. Finally, another day, another record for Prince Harry and his memoir, with his publisher announcing more than 1.4 million copies were sold on Tuesday alone. At the same time, today, members of the royal family were out in public for the first time since the bombshell book drop with the king visiting a community space in Aberdeenshire and the Prince of, and Princess of Wales visiting a Liverpool hospital. Up next, the premiers will be here and our front bench will dig into fixing health care in Canada. Stay with us. I always believe in sticking with other premiers, and uh, uh, Premier Stephenson's doing a great job as chair. We're working with her. I was messaging her the, this morning, and uh, we want a fair deal for the province, uh, all the provinces and, and the territories. I'm very, very confident. So we're going to keep working at it, and I'm sure uh, all of us will be out uh, making an announcement hopefully sooner than later. I've had some very constructive conversations with uh, premiers including Premier Ford and Premier Legault. Um, our ministers uh, and uh, their counterparts are working very closely and I'm uh, hopeful that we're going to be able to come to an agreement soon. Both the Prime Minister and Ontario Premier Doug Ford, they're signaling the provinces and the feds may be getting close to a health funding agreement. It's been a months and months long stalemate with Ottawa claiming to have billions on the table if provinces accept strings on the cash and premiers opposing those strings, though that does appear to be shifting a bit now. This week, Nova Scotia's Tim Houston was on our program telling us he would accept federal conditions and Ford said the same this week as well. We've got a very special edition of the front bench today to unpack all of that, taking you coast to coast to coast with former Premiers joining us this evening, former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Hi, everyone. Such a pleasure to welcome you to the show tonight. Thanks for making the time. Uh, Christy, you, I'll, I'll start with you. I, I feel like I have the same question for all three of you right off the bat. How much of this watching this back and forth over the past number of months has felt like deja vu? <laughs> oh, deja vu all over and over and over and over again. It's exactly the same thing. I mean, the th problem, part of the problem in Canada is that you've got two levels of government who are both responsible for health care uh, or responsible for funding health care. And we, you know how it works. When more than one person is responsible, nobody's responsible, nobody's accountable. Everybody points fingers at the other, other people in the room. And they'll get to an agreement. I have no doubt about it. They'll decide to spend a bunch more money. There will be no way to keep track of it as there ever is, so they can attach as many strings as they want. I mean, it's really kind of a hopeless, never-ending circle of um, the blame game, 
more money, no accountability, more blame, and the circle keeps going around and around. Kathleen, do you have the sense that it's that futile as well? Was that your experience? Well, <laughs> that's depressing, Christy. That's <laughs> depressing view. I think I, I'm, I'm going to be a bit more optimistic. Um, I mean, I, you know, I can remember a time when there were strings attached and there was money that went into the healthcare system and there was transformation in terms of reducing wait times and so on in, uh, in Ontario. I, I agree with Christy, though, that um, it looks like and we know that the people of Canada want a deal. They want to see that the federal and the provincial governments are working together. I think that um, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has a real problem right now because there's not a lot of trust between the uh, the premiers and the federal government. Not everyone with everyone, but um, I think what Daniel Smith is doing in Alberta is very problematic. And so I would not be at all surprised, as has happened in the past, and Christy and Daryl know this well, that there would be some bilateral agreements to start out with. Maybe there'll be a unified front, but I would be very surprised if there weren't some um, some initial agreements between the federal government and a province or a couple of provinces, and then you'll see everybody come on side. That's what I would predict would happen. Well, uh, Daryl, Kathleen kind of read my mind because that's where I was going next because that was the question essentially initially to Premier Ford today. Uh, are, are you prepared now that you've said you're willing to accept conditions because not all the premiers have uh, agreed to the same? Are you prepared to do something bilateral? He kind of insisted he wasn't. But but do you think that's the case? Do you think ultimately the feds will be able to pick apart provinces and go one on one? Well, first, just let me say I, I feel a little different than Christy did because I certainly felt accountable for health care when I was in the Premier's office. Um, the, the, uh, I think the bilateral question is uh, you know, not one that should be uh, pursued anxiously, at least by, by Premiers. The reality of the situation is that the current policy of, of the federal government with respect to the Canada health transfer is the same as the, uh, the Harper government uh, before. They, they, they capped the rate of increase, uh, which you know, effectively meant a, a cut in, in, uh, in health care funding, and that just uh, continued. And, and so it's been that way for now more than a decade. And, uh, you know, the, the health care funding could use a, a, a serious reset. And uh, I think, you know, through the kind of established program um, uh, uh, financing of, uh, of health care is the best way to do that. Uh, Christy, uh, sort of back to the circular, uh, the circular nature of it, though. Do you think there is a way around that? Uh, and if so, what would it be? You know, I mean, I know Daryl may have felt accountable, but I sure remember him pointing his finger at the feds like almost every other premier in the country has ever since the system began. I mean, I think it's a fundamental flaw in the system that you've got two levels right. of government responsible for funding it, and it really leaves a lot of room in between for the different levels to point at the other one to say, hey, you should be putting more money into this. And it goes both ways. And that argument has never gotten us anywhere. I don't know if this is a solvable problem. We might have solved it by now if it was. I do think, though, I mean, there is a more fundamental problem, Vashi, which is that we need to ask ourselves as Canadians. We have in the developed world um, the most expensive per capita health care, except for the United States. We also have some of the worst outcomes 
in the world, in the developed world, except for the United States. And I think if money was what we needed to solve the problem, we would have the best system in the world, but we don't. And I think we need to be thinking not just about the money, although that does matter. We really need to be focused between levels of government on real profound reform in our healthcare system to make it one that actually is affordable. And when we put more money in, it actually does um, mean that there's better service for Canadians. Because I don't think Canadians care where the money comes from. I don't care they think they care who's taking responsibility for it. I think what they care is that they get to the hospital, they get to emergency, they don't die waiting for care, that they can get their heart operation before it becomes, or their cancer care before it becomes too critical. That's what people care about. And just putting more money into a system that is so far from being reformed and no one's even talking about reform is not going to make it that much better. It's just going to keep us in the same old holding pattern. Kathleen, it's interesting yeah, because that's that, that reminds me that, oh, sorry, Daryl, give me one second. I'll, I'll get to you. You go ahead, actually, quickly, and then I'll, I'll finish off with Kathleen. Well, well, that's just that's just where I do absolutely agree with Christy, and I think it doesn't matter whether you're a patient or a parent with a sick child or a healthcare worker; they're all exhausted by the status quo, and and uh, you know the, this is an opportunity for the federal government to display some leadership when it comes to um, uh, uh, some kind of fundamental reforms, um, some new thinking about a way, the way we deliver healthcare in Canada, and I w I would suggest that one of the things that the federal government could do is they could look at a you know a national health human resource strategy and uh, with with a, a number of components over which they could you know exercise a d degree of control or at the very least influence what the provinces are doing and that that would include they could break down the barriers for uh, healthcare workers from other countries to come into Canada they could help smooth the accreditation pro uh, 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 process right across the country by working with provinces and working with the various colleges. Um, they could focus some of their time and energy on what the training of healthcare workers looks like in this country. So there's lots that they could they could do if they truly wanted to change the way the system operates. I just have a few seconds left in this round, Kathleen. But but does that uh, is that potentially exacerbating the issue that that Christy mentioned, which is the like multi like the the two two-ply, uh, two-pronged approach to health care, that those two levels of jurisdiction kind of can, can exacerbate the problem? You know, Vashti, I really believe that um, people in Canada expect our publicly funded health care to be a national project. You know, um, I think that I agree with Christy that the tension between the provincial and the federal governments isn't helpful. But what Daryl's talking about and some kind of ongoing process that allows that ongoing review, the trouble is... What review means right now, if you listen to Danielle Smith and some of the other premiers, is, you know, a privatization of the system, which is not what Canadians want. And that, I think, is what's breaking down some of the trust. So I agree that there needs to be an ongoing discussion. There needs to be a process whereby there is ongoing transformation. But that has to be consistent with citizens' expectations of what the healthcare system will be. And I don't think that will happen province by province. Uh, we, we'll have to save that public-private debate for next for next week, the round next week. But we do have another round of the front bench coming up. On the other side of a quick break, we're going to talk about those comments from U.S. Ambassador David Cohen about American protectionism. Stay with us.
I don't think Joe Biden feels a pull of protectionism. Um, I've known him for 30 years, for almost three decades. And he's had a very consistent um, perspective and attitude around trade and around commerce, which is, first and foremost, he is in the business of promoting American jobs and American economic activity. But he also has a full appreciation of the fact that America can't go it alone on anything. U.S. Ambassador David Cohen there from earlier on this program insisting U.S. President Joe Biden is not feeling the pull of protectionism. Is that true? Let's get uh, our front bench to weigh in on that. Former premiers Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne and Daryl Dexter are here tonight. Uh, Daryl, I'll start with you. If you were still premier, how worried would you be about something like the Inflation Reduction Act and what it does? Well, um, certainly the Inflation Reduction Act was a, a cover for a lot of um, uh, Buy America um, uh, policy that was kind of embedded, um, you know, throughout the um, throughout the, the spending bill. Um, but this has always been the case with Democrats in the U.S. They've always had uh, predilection for um, uh, 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 to uh, for for tariffs and for uh, protectionism, and that just means it's uh, it's uh, more incumbent upon um, the uh, uh, the prime minister and the government to work to beat back the standard bearers of protectionism. But there's also a good reason in the U.S. for them to, to want to think twice about this. The U.S.'s share of the global economy has been declining now for more than 50 years. And the idea of this kind of world global hegemony uh, that, that is focused on the U.S., that's just gone. We, are, we have now moved into a multipolar uh, world. There are lots of regional uh, economic players, whether it's the European Union or India or China. China. And um, from an economic perspective, it would just be smarter for the United States if, if uh, they would look to strengthen um, the continental market here and not, not just to Mexico, but probably looking at Central America and the Caribbean as well. And that would be uh, a, a better thing for the U.S. from a policy perspective, and it would also benefit Canada. But from a politics perspective, Kathleen, doesn't Biden have to take into account his domestic audience? Sure, and that's why, um, that's why although the ambassador is saying there's no pull to protectionism, there is a political force around uh, that rhetoric. If I, were, you know, if I were in the premier's chair, it would be um, my instruction that we just not take our Foot off the um, the gas, if I can say, in terms of uh, of those relationships. You know, when the NAFTA renegotiation was starting, the provinces, um, certainly our province, was in constant conversation with governors and elected officials in the states to impress upon them just what Daryl was talking about: how interconnected the economies are and how interdependent they are. And so, I think that uh, that. That has to continue to happen because there will be pressures on Biden and he needs to he needs to hear from the people uh, in his world that they can't afford to deal with uh, breaking that relationship with Canada. I mean, 18 percent of the um, goods that are sold from the United States come to Canada. There are 28 states for whom Ontario alone is their number one or number two trading partner. I mean, those are. Those are irrefutable facts, and those are American jobs. Uh, last word to you on this, Christy. I know that we can make the case, 
But does the federal government need to do more to try and counter? And I mean, they've said that they will, but, but do they need to do more to go kind of toe to toe with what the IRA effectively subsidizes and does in the U.S.? Well, yeah, but I mean, not by fighting with the Americans. I mean, I'm really alarmed I th these days at how low Canada's standing has become in the world. And I think, you know, now that we are no longer taken so seriously by other countries around the world, the Americans don't take us so seriously as a friend. I mean, I remember uh, Perrin Beattie from the Canadian Chamber of Commerce saying, we used to have a strategic relationship with the United States, and now it's just entirely transactional. And I would say, I mean, if I was back in the Premier's chair too, I mean, I would say, look, we don't want to fight with the United States. We want to try and beat them. And, you know, you look at, for example, their tax policy that's in the, in the Inflation Reduction Act for green energy. You can just hear the sucking sound of investment leaving Canada in our green energy sector, which was growing so quickly as people relocate to the United States because it's easier to do business down there. LNG, we started early. We still haven't got one done. The Americans, suck, again, sucked the energy out of Canada by having better policies around regulation and construction, just more energy-friendly policies. I mean, you can look all across the board on that stuff. And, you know, I wouldn't really call that protectionism. I would just call that doing a better job of understanding how, the, how to grow an economy. And because we are so close to them, it makes it very easy for investors in Canada to just, and Canadians who are founding companies and creating wealth, to just, you know, drive a couple hours from Vancouver down to Seattle and, and do it there instead with exactly the same number of rainy days that they had here. I wish I had a lot more time because I can see everyone wanting to jump in and I, and I know that there are a lot of counterpoints to do that. So we're going to save it because my wild guess is the IRA and its effect on the investment climate in Canada will remain a topic for a number of weeks. Thank you so much to all three of you for making the time this evening and for this discussion. Former BC Premier Christy Clark, former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter and former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne. One takeaway from today from Ambassador, uh, U.S. Ambassador David Cohen is around Nexus. He told us that uh, the U.S.'s red line continues to be one, despite there being during that summit in Mexico City with the prime minister and his U.S. and Mexican colleagues, or counterparts rather, despite there being an interim agreement to get Nexus back up and running here in Canada, it looks like uh, a long-term agreement is still a ways away. That red line for the U.S. is about seeking immunity from Canadian prosecution for U.S. border guards in enrollment offices here in Canada. Canada says that's a no-go. In fact, in the past, they've even said, the ambassador, the Canadian ambassador to the U.S. has even said the U.S. is holding us hostage over it. Ambassador Cohen refutes that characterization, but does say it remains a red line, which lends, it, lends us to the idea that perhaps a long-term solution is not in the works. That does it for us here tonight on Power Play. I'm happy to hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great evening, and we'll see you back tomorrow.